I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about rumors of a rift on the Supreme Court, judicial nominations, and we'll interview Buckeye Institute's Robert Alt. So the court meets for conference later this week, so we're going to report back in our next episode on any noteworthy orders. But speaking of conference, Tiffany, have you heard there are these reports that Neil Gorsuch isn't getting along with all of his colleagues? I have, and it sounds like phony baloney to me. (laughs) Particularly Elena Kagan, apparently. According to NPR's Nina Totenberg, she claims that the two have been frequently sparring during conference. Now, I have to say at the outset, I take with a grain of salt anything that that I hear that purports to have happened uh, in the conference. The justices are notoriously secretive about these meetings. Even law clerks aren't allowed in. Um, And, you know, the purpose of conference, isn't it for them to be debating over issues and, and, you know, coming to a resolution of how they're going to write an opinion in a case? So it seems like that's uh, that's the place where they should be sparring. Yeah, I think that's the whole point of a secret conference is so that they can yell at each other and hash these things out um, privately. And I really doubt that any of the justices would be talking about this. Um, publicly if that was actually what was happening. Uh, Very true. So Nina Totenberg also had some not-so-nice things to say about Justice Gorsuch on the podcast First Mondays. So she says that during oral argument, he frequently says things like, let's look at the Constitution, what it has to say about this. That's always a good place to start. Now, we already know he's folksy. This was, you know, his shtick during the confirmation hearing. And I personally think it's kind of endearing. And yeah, I think we should start with the Constitution. That is a great place to start. So I'm wholeheartedly with Gorsuch on that. Uh, She also said that he doesn't add much to the conversation with all the questions that he's asking. uh, But I think the whole point of oral argument is for the justices to wrestle with the legal issues before them. So if they have questions, I hope they would ask them. Uh, she also said maybe he's not as smart as as we all thought he was, but anyone who's read any of his opinions or his speeches uh, can see why that is patently false. I think this is the real kicker of like how much of a stretch all of this is. Like Neil Gorsuch isn't really that smart. It's like okay, yeah. <laughs> After reading his opinions and you know watching him during the confirmation hearing, um, I think we all know that's not very that's not true at all. And finally, Totenberg says that she hears he doesn't believe in precedent, which kind of makes precedent sound like it's Santa Claus. You believe in it or you don't. Uh, But putting aside the fact that Gorsuch wrote a book about precedent, um, I don't think he was trying to fake out everyone by, you know, writing about precedent just so he could get on the Supreme Court and then undo everything that the liberals don't like. But I I think this is clearly motivated by a concern that he he could be a vote to overturn cases that liberals like if he has the chance. Yeah. Also, precedents, uh, you know, It takes some analysis to determine what's a valid precedent and what's not based on a series of um, factors. So it's not just like a one-shot thing. Um, It's more complicated than that. Uh, So this is one of many attacks on Gorsuch recently. Uh, Last episode, we talked about Jeff Tubin's ridiculous article proposing that um, Gorsuch was annoying the Supreme Court. I think these are all efforts to discredit the justice uh, since people are since they're still mad that Trump won the election and put Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. And speaking of judicial nominations, we haven't talked about them in a while. Yeah. So we thought we'd give a a brief update. So seven judges have been confirmed so far this year. That's including Justice Gorsuch, four Court of Appeals judges and two district judges. To date, there are more than 160 current and future vacancies. I think we're up to 166 um, total with 54 nominees pending. The Senate Judiciary Committee has held hearings for several nominees in recent weeks, including Stephanos Bebas and Greg Katzis, who are two Court of Appeals nominees. Uh, So, uh, Tiffany, do you want to tell us about Stephanos's 
confirmation hearing. Yes. So his hearing went uh, very, very well. Stephanos Bebas um, is a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and the president has nominated him to the Third Circuit. He's an expert in criminal law and criminal procedure, and he also runs Penn's Supreme Court Clinic. And he's argued several cases uh, before the Supreme Court uh, while being the head of that, um, from everything from criminal procedure cases to bankruptcy. Um, He's brilliant. He started college at Columbia when he was 15, and he's probably one of the most animated people that I've ever met, and that definitely came out in his hearing. Uh, The Democratic senators were unnecessarily hostile to him, including prodding him about a paper that was never published um, in the paper he'd thrown out ideals about corporal punishment as a possible way to shift incentives in the criminal justice system. Um, As I said before, he never ended up publishing that paper, but he did publish a book that said pretty much the opposite because he decided the original ideas were bad. Um, But the Democrats kept harping on this unpublished paper. And he's like, look, I admit they're bad ideas. This is part of the creative process. Um, Like, you should actually read the book and the ideas that I do believe in. Um, But Stephanos did a fantastic job, and I don't anticipate any issues with his confirmation. And one of the Democratic senators, I forget which one it was, um, kept going, you know, asking him about why he had only been in uh, the U.S. attorney's office for two years. He left to to enter academia. And Stephanos, you know, he said it was a great experience. I, you know, I enjoyed my time there, but I got an opportunity to to get into teaching and that's what I wanted to do. So yeah, that's I what th- I did. I think that was Senator Blumenthal. It's like, well, how dare you just stay in a job for two years? Like, I don't <laughs> I think know what he, that says. He was trying to uncover him. some sort of unseemly motive for why <laughs> Stephanos left. Uh, so Greg Katzis uh, it also had his confirmation hearing recently. He's currently the deputy White House counsel, and he's been nominated to the D.C. Circuit. So he was formerly a partner at Jones Day. He held several posts in the Justice Department during the Bush administration, and he clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. He's uh, argued numerous cases before the appeals court and the Supreme Court, including the first challenge to Obamacare, NFIB versus Sebelius. So he's been nominated to a primo seat, replacing Judge Janice Rogers Brown on a court that has been considered a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. So at his hearing, the Democrats focused mostly on the last nine months of his career, uh, and they were less interested in his nearly three decades of legal experience in and out of government. So they asked him to discuss advice he had provided to the president about matters like the Russia probe, the travel ban, the religious freedom executive order, and other conversations that are clearly within the scope of attorney-client privilege. And probably the executive privilege. Yes, true. Uh, And they also asked for commitments that he would recuse himself in a whole host of cases. And he, you know, he explained that he would follow the the guidelines for recusal. Um, One example was uh, a senator brought up the emoluments, uh, the emoluments clause case. And and Katza said, that's a clear example, Uh, you know, open and shut. I would recuse because I worked on that case. Um, So anyway, well, you know, that's uh, something they kept harping on, though. Um, Senator Hatch gave Katzis the opportunity to elaborate on some of his lesser known cases, um, including when he represented the ACLU and the People for the American Way uh, in challenging FCC fines that that uh, that uh, on First Amendment grounds. And also um, the case of an Ethiopian woman who was seeking asylum because of political persecution in her home country. So Katzis, uh, you know, he's demonstrated that he'll be a fair and impartial jurist and committed to faithfully applying the Constitution. So we look forward to uh, his hopefully swift confirmation. And there was also one district court nominee that the the Democrats hit really hard in his hearing. So Brett Talley, he works in the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice. And, you know, he's uh, 
been nominated to a district court in Alabama. And Senator Feinstein um, tried to get him to promise to recuse in all cases involving guns because he had written a blog about the Second Amendment at one at one time. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of stretching going on in these confirmation hearings. Um, but some nominees aren't even uh, getting hearings or moving on to get votes. Uh, they're being held up, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, first is the blue slips. So while blue slips aren't the number one problem, um, because several Democrats have returned their blue slips, including for Amy Barrett, Joan Larson, and Stephanos Bibas, um, they are still a problem because Democrats are holding uh, two nominees hostage right now, including David Strauss, um, who's been nominated to the Eighth Circuit, and Ryan Bounds, who's been nominated to the Ninth Circuit. And there are many more judicial vacancies in states that have one or two Democrat senators who will almost certainly refuse to uh, just hand over their blue slips. Um, California, anyone? <laughs> uh, the White House also may be less willing to put readily put forth nominees for those states, and they might uh, be taking blue, potential blue slip problems into account in advance with some of these nominees. So this means they could pass over the very best candidate in favor of someone who won't face a blue slip problem. And I think that's a bad thing. Uh, Mitch McConnell announced that he would no longer allow blue slips uh, to hold up nominees, and instead he would treat them as an indication of how a senator will vote. But Chuck Grassley, the Judiciary uh, Committee chairman, responded that uh, McConnell should hold up, that this was his call, and for now he will address any blue slip issues on a case-by-case basis, whatever that means. Um, but regardless how the Senate decides to handle blue slips, they're a problem that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, and you know the the Senate previously got rid of the filibuster for judicial nominations a while ago now uh, for appeals court nominees, and the world has not ended. The world has not ended, um, but they're continuing to allow basically a a one senator veto to continue, which seems a little um, uh, counterintuitive to me. So another problem is the thirty hour rule. So and this is something that uh, that potentially Mitch McConnell could do something about, unlike the blue slips, since uh, those are under the purview of. Uh, Chuck Grassley. So Democrats can demand 30 hours of debate after cloture has been filed on a nominee. So this is before the Senate actually votes on the nominee. Senator Lankford of Oklahoma has proposed a rules change that would limit debate to eight hours for most nominees. And I think there's another senator who might have even proposed a two-hour limit, which uh, wouldn't that be great? Um, But oftentimes there's no actual debate and the 30-hour rule is basically used to run the clock. For example, the Democrats required 30 hours of debate on the confirmation uh, vote for District Court Judge David Nye, who uh, I would point out had previously been uh, nominated by President Obama, um, and then Trump renominated him, and he was ultimately confirmed unanimously. So this was clearly a strategy to waste time and prevent uh, Senator McConnell from moving on to other nominees. So uh, McConnell has said at this rate it'll take 11 years to vote on all of the executive branch and judicial nominations, uh, which I think is a, is a problem, and we hope that things will start getting streamlined so we can get these great nominees through. And one more thing the Senate can do is work more. <laughs> um, sorry, friends in the Senate, but if I only work two and a half days a week, um, I would most certainly be fired. Um, I also keep hearing this line that the Senate is confirming judges on par with the last two presidents, but that's kind of like saying, I jumped higher than a cockroach. Um, just because the last two administrations were lazy about getting judges confirmed doesn't mean that's... Um, that should be the standard. The bottom line is the Senate uh, needs to get moving. So uh, next up, we're going to talk with uh, with Robert Alt. We're pleased to have with him uh, here in the studio today. Yes. Uh, welcome, Robert. Robert is the president of the Buckeye Institute in Ohio. 
He's previously been a law professor, a blogger, a war correspondent in Iraq, and he was our former colleague here at Heritage. Thanks for having me on. So, Robert, your organization filed an amicus brief in the Houston case, Houston versus Randolph Institute. So this is a case dealing with Ohio's voter roll cleanup that the Supreme Court's going to hear in early November. Could you tell us a little bit about what your brief addressed? Sure. So the case deals with the question, uh, you know, there's sort of conflicting requirements in federal law. One, that the Secretary of State clean up the voter rolls, that they be accurate uh, voter rolls. Uh, but there's a second requirement that says that the sole criteria for cleaning up cannot be uh, – for dismissing someone from the rolls cannot be that you failed to vote. Um, and so Ohio, in in cleaning up its voter rolls, re- relies upon a supplemental criteria. It If you haven't voted in multiple elections, that may indicate you could have moved or something like that. So what they do is they send – uh, correspondence to you seeking confirmation that you still live at that residence. If, in fact, you don't, then then following that, they, they'll begin proceedings to take you off the voter rolls. Um, lawsuit was filed and this process was struck down uh, as being inconsistent with uh, the, the NVRA, the National Voter uh, Registration Act. Um, <clears throat> Buckeye filed a brief actually to to make one key point, kind of the – going back to your comment earlier, the Gorsuch point. OK, first let's look at the Constitution. <laughs> uh, and the Constitution actually makes it clear that voter qualifications, uh, the, the authority to set those with the exception of uh, some areas that were carved out uh, under the voting rights amendments uh, uh, are reserved expressly to the states. Uh, and so – to the extent that Congress attempted to modify if, – if the NVRA were applied in such a way that it restricted Ohio's ability to, to enforce its residency requirement, that would be unconstitutional because that would be Congress asserting its own judgment as to what the qualifications of a voter should be. So we, essentially we made I think the small but important point that if in fact – uh, uh, the NVRA is being interpreted in the way that those who saw, sought to strike, strike down Ohio's uh, process uh, uh, had done, that in fact would violate the Constitution. So as you mentioned, states are required by the NVRA to clean up their voter rolls. So if the court rules against Ohio, how will this hamper the state's ability to comply um, with federal law? Well, I, obviously, this would greatly infringe on their ability to take people off the rolls who no longer resided in the state. And we see oftentimes this ends up being a big issue with potential voter fraud. It also just create, you know, it, it makes the, the voter rolls unwieldy. Uh, I, I recall at one point, in fact, uh, even I had moved, taken myself, you know, taken the attempt to get myself off the voter rolls moved back to an area, saw that I was still on the voter rolls in that jurisdiction, um, uh, you know, which made me worry had someone attempted to use my registration in the meantime. There needs to be processes to ensure that the voter rolls are accurate because, of course, if if in fact someone were to rely or to vote in multiple jurisdictions, that hurts the legitimate voters. That dilutes their vote. It, it, that itself is a violation of the voter rights of the legitimate voters who are attempting to have their voice heard because their voice gets di- – their vote gets diluted by illegitimate votes. So uh, this is actually a very important case because this is a key mechanism that states use in order to make sure that the people who in fact are registered to vote are still residents 
of that particular uh, district and are eligible to vote there. It seems like we hear a lot about Ohio's voter laws being challenged in court. Uh, Why do you think that is? Does it have something to do with Ohio traditionally being a battleground state? Uh, Look, uh, in Ohio, we do one thing and we do it very well, and that's we choose every single president for (laughs) over the last 50 years. Uh, And so uh, to the rest of the country, you're welcome. We do our (laughs) job. so, of course, I mean, in terms of this, you're not going to see if, if in fact, uh, I think a state, you know, were something like a state like California, where in, in, a, in, in most elections, it's not going to even be close. You're not going to have them fighting over every vote in the same way. Um, I think Ohio's role as the quintessential swing state and, you know, ends up being the reason why some of these challenges are brought, brought in Ohio. So let's uh, step uh, back a minute to back to judicial nomination. So you clerked for Judge Alice Batchelder on the Sixth Circuit. She's announced that she will take senior status once President Trump nominates um, and the Senate confirms her successor. So Judge Batchelder is hailed as one of the greatest of the Reagan judges. So can you tell us um, what it was like to work for her? Well, first, I have to say it was intimidating, uh, which is to say uh, – I, I recall you. You're you're fresh out of law school. You go to clerk for for a judge. This Judge Batchelder is the sort of judge you go to chat with her on any particular question of law, and her knowledge is encyclopedic, and it's just she knows it off the top of her head on just about any question you can ask. It really makes you feel, you know, as a recent law school graduate, like you must know absolutely nothing uh, <laughs> because it, you know you. you uh, uh, you could not stump her with any issue. Not only would she have the answer, she'd tell you what year the court had actually looked at that question and and and, and point out, you know, but questions were raised about it in this other case. So uh, uh, just she had a, a, a real wisdom but also just a, a knowledge of the law that was really truly daunting. Um, but at the same point, uh, you know, I was told at one point that uh, uh, clerking, uh, uh, clerking for a federal judge is probably the best job. If you really enjoy the law, is probably the best job you'll ever have. You'll ever have unless you actually become a judge yourself. And I found that very much to be true. Judge Batchelder was a wonderful mentor uh, and really uh, walked her judge, walked her clerks, I should say, through the process. Uh, and it, just one of the great learning experiences of my life to work for. So as a follow-up, uh, what's your favorite memory of clerking for her? Uh, there are many. I, 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 in terms of that, I always enjoyed uh, uh, oral arguments. Uh, but I, I think our year, uh, and I don't know if she's done this as much recently, uh, Judge Batchelder was a big fan of roller coasters. So she <laughs> took uh, the entire chambers to Cedar Point. Uh, and was absolutely fearless. She she would get this you know sort of look in her eyes. You know the crazier the roller coaster was, the more she wanted to ride it. So that was that was actually I mean outside of the formality of the uh, uh, of the clerking process, that was uh, a very memorable day. With the judge <laughs> sounds like it. So uh, what do you think her legacy will be on on the court? Uh, is there an area of the law that she developed during her time on the bench? The interesting thing, if you if you talk to practitioners about Judge Batchelder, I think the the uh, uh, the comment you'll get is consistency across so many areas of law. Uh, 
she you know she issued major opinions and on issues from criminal law to national security law to First Amendment law, free speech, you know, including free speech, campaign finance, major decisions across the board. And she was just absolutely consistent in applying the law. She beat into her clerks the fact that uh, you may, as you're looking at these cases, you may find that that I have to go in directions that that. I don't want to go, that you don't want to go, but that the law requires. We follow the law where it leads. We don't follow you know, whatever your own policy instincts might be on the particular question. Uh, and that's, and it, you can see that in her decisions, uh, just this utter consistency. I think um, I'd be remiss without, but without pointing out a couple of areas that I think she's made a particular impact on. Um, one, I think she's Quite proud of her decision in uh, Spendthrift Farms, which was a sort of a question of uh, that hadn't come up before the court before the uh, um, Congress had attempted to essentially uh, undo a Supreme Court decision by permitting uh, cases that had been finally dismissed to be uh, refiled uh, uh, based based upon a new new law after a final judgment had been entered. Uh, Judge Batchelder issued a decision for the Court of Appeals finding that that would violate separation of powers principles and the Supreme Court in a decision by Justice Scalia uh, affirmed that decision. So I think she's – I think that's a decision she's rightly proud of. I think uh, another area that I think uh, uh, she's been seen as a leader on is in the First Amendment context with regard to the freedom of religion. She's I think been a real leader on the court with regard to – Pushing back against you know some of the outmoded conceptions that somehow the establishment clause required uh, a diminution of religious speech in the public square, uh, and so I think that's been an area where she has been uniquely a leader among judges uh, across the country. So changing gears a bit, you recently made headlines for your brush with death during a mountain climbing excursion in a remote part of Russia. What did you learn from this experience? Is it don't go mountain climbing in Russia? Uh, well, it, you know, I, I think what it is is the links to which I will go to demonstrate that government-run healthcare is not the solution <laughs> uh, uh, ends up being uh, a, a major lesson learned. That and you do not want to go to a hospital in rural Russia near the Georgian border. I do not recommend it. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> so uh, final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Uh, uh, that's that's a tough question. So back when I, uh, I, I worked with you all at Heritage, one of the things that I was able to do uh, was to begin a lecture series uh, here at Heritage, which in fact we're, we're going to be having here this evening, the, the Justice Story Distinguished Lecture. Uh, and so I suppose uh, in terms of that, I'd, I'd choose Justice Story uh, and perhaps less so because of his decisions on the court but more so uh, with to chat with him about uh, his commentaries on the Constitution, which were uh, – it was interesting. If you look, his source materials on that tended – he tended to look to the – to the Federalist Papers and to the early decisions of John Marshall and, and looked at how it is that the Federalist Papers were playing out in the courts um, and tried to apply the common sense understanding of what the Constitution meant. So I think I think that could be a, 
uh, uh, that could be a an, a conversation that would uh, endure over uh, a brandy or two. <laughs> yeah, that would be de- definitely be an interesting uh, conversation. So we're going to wrap up with a game, Real Decision or Fake News, where we're going to try to stump Robert by describing a court holding, and he'll tell us if it's a real decision or if it's fake news. Are you ready? No, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first holding. Tomatoes are vegetables, not fruit. Uh, well, uh, uh, I would argue that that was not a holding, but dicta, but I'm going to say yes, holding. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. It's okay. It's a real case. In Nix versus Hedden in 1893, the Supreme Court decided that for purposes of customs regulations, tomatoes are vegetables and not fruit. Second one. Apple cider vinegar is mislabeled if it's made from dried apples instead of fresh apples. Hmm. It sounds like something that could be, but I'm going to say fake news. No, this is a real case. So in United States, uh, against 95 barrels, more or less, alleged apple cider vinegar, (laughs) um, the Supreme Court in 1924 decided that the use of dried apples results in a different product. I I love the cases, the NREM cases with the names like that, (laughs) the, you know, 95 barrels of alleged apple cider. (laughs) Third, uh, third holding. A state violated the rights of a prisoner who is a member of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster by not granting his request for religious accommodations. Uh, I'm going to say real. That is fake news. It's actually the reverse. A district court in Nebraska actually ruled against an inmate finding that the uh, FSMism or Flying Spaghetti Monsterism is not a real religion but satire. All right, I'm down two to one. There's still time to redeem yourself. Okay, next case. A middle schooler's civil rights were not violated when he was arrested and handcuffed for burping in class. I'll say fake news. No, this is a real case. Um, A.M. against Holmes is the case name. This is a Tenth Circuit case in which uh, Justice Gorsuch, then Judge Gorsuch, dissented, quoting Charles Dickens, saying... I admire my colleagues today, for no doubt they they reach a result they dislike, but believe the law demands. I don't believe the law happens to be quite as much of an ass as they do. I respectfully (laughs) dissent. Final case. Forced sterilization of the so-called feeble-minded is constitutional. Well, uh, three generations of idiots are enough. That is correct. It's a real case. In Buck versus Bell, 1927, the court upheld the state of Virginia's law uh, with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. famously noting that three generations of imbecile is enough. And unfortunately, I think this case has never been overturned and is um, technically still on the books. Yeah, I wonder if that's the sort of precedent that Nina Totenberg wouldn't want uh, Gorsuch to believe in. <laughs> well, Robert, you did you did okay, but thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you join, enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.